Hello to everybody and we are now episode 26 of The Media Beat with Maureen and Claire. Maureen leading the media practice at Arthur D. Little, Claire being a commentator on all things media and they have both been friends for many, many years. And it's one of those special ones today in that we have a guest, another guest from an incredibly um, impressive roster and no more uh, impressive than who's joining us today. Um, so uh, we are uh, joined by Christy Tanner um, and it's a great pleasure to have her. She has had a really interesting career. It's the kind of um, CV that makes you think what the hell have I been doing in my life but nevertheless um, she started off as a reporter. She's worked in B2B Publishing, um, she's worked for the Washington Post Company, um, and she's worked for the TV Guide, which as everybody knows is the Bible of TV in America, and she digitised that effectively before moving on to CBSi uh, and um, CBS News after that. She's basically the kind of guest we love, she's a creative leader, but she is also an exploiter of digital, a very rare breed indeed at the senior level in which she operates. She's been called a streaming visionary, uh, which is quite nice, almost any word before visionary is something nice to be called. Um, she led the strategy that transformed CBS News Digital and CBSN into the number one Comscore ranked streaming news service by delivering on audience needs for trusted information and deep dive knowledge. Trusted information being one of the key things that are driving the news agenda these days, sadly. Uh, but more of that later. Uh, she's also a great advocate for DEI, particularly uh, women in the world of media and beyond, and as such co-chairs the Reykjavik Global Forum Women's Leaders uh, and uh, uses that to influence um, for business models and trusted content creators and for press freedom and more of the proliferation of underrepresented groups in media. It is a massive pleasure to welcome you, Christy, from, uh, if you're not watching on video, looks like one of those very, very cool um, uh, um, houses in the middle of nowhere that you get in America made of wood. Uh, but I don't know, perhaps you're going to tell me you're right in the middle of DC or something. Um, but uh, it's absolutely uh, 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 great to uh, welcome you. Hi, Christy. Hi, Oliver. I'm in, I'm in rural Maine, so you know. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, that, that was you. oh, by the way, I forgot to say wh where you say uh, your goal for organizations is the same as your goal as a runner and a skier, which I thought what you mean she wants to crash into trees, which is the way I ski. But I'm assuming that you are a, a, a skillful skier. Uh, and that's why you say you use that metaphor because it helps you keep moving forward and for a long time, which I love. That's that is what I would say. I would I would like to do that. OK, <laughs> perfect. Well, uh, I, I know both Claire and Maureen are chomping at the bit as ever when we get a guest on the show. Um, Claire, I know you want to start, so I'll waste no more time. Thank you very much, Oliver. And, and hi, Christy. It's so wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, for many reasons, but mostly because you are the person uh, that I know that knows most about the, the news industry, the news world, and how it has changed and evolved quite dramatically over the last, I don't know, 20 years, perhaps. Uh, I mean, it's always been a moving target, but I think the transformation that it's gone through recently, it's, it's more unique than anything that it's lived through before. And I'd love to start you off with a very broad question of What's going on with news? You know, where is it going? Where are people getting their news? You know, and how do you see that changing? Well, let's just say I have been doing this for a long time. I, I started my career as a teenage news reporter for my local newspaper and local TV station. There is no video of me um, as a 13-year-old reporting on how video games were going to replace pinball for my, my local TV station. But well, first of all, that was visionary. And secondly, I'm going to trust Google to find something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's people have looked. It's not there. But, um, but so that's to say there has been a massive evolution in, in over, I would say, more like three decades period. Um, but where we are now is that the costs of producing news have really gone way down. And there's a, there are formats and templates that are very easy to replicate, whether you are a trusted, credible journalist who has been studying the craft and training and understanding libel laws and, you know, how to, how to, how to do things right everything from grammar to how to write a proper headline, or 
you are, you know, a person sitting in their bunker or basement and and broadcasting lies to the world. And all and those things can look very much the same, which has made it somewhat challenging for some people to determine what is truth and what is fiction. I think that sums up where we are today. And there's a lot more to it, but I, I would sum it up by saying, you know, with, with video editing in the cloud, with the ability to buy a control room in a box, the ability to self-produce um, almost like a one-man band, if you can imagine it, um, or one-person band, let's say, uh, as opposed to the old way of meeting, you know, a makeup crew, a hair crew, a whole bunch of, of people in a control room and, and producers and editors having, having that look essentially the same as someone sitting at home, um, in their living room is, is both, you know, a benefit to certain people who have something important to say. Uh, but it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, for people to navigate, you know, who's credible and who's not. And how does that, what, what, what impact has, has had that had, oops, I'm real scared, uh, on traditional news sources? So, you know, 30 years ago, people would either buy the paper or they would watch news on TV. That's how you would know what was going on. I mean, what, what's, what's happening with those traditional uh, news sources? So you have news on TikTok, you have news on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. They all have different sort of vibes, I would say. But if if you're a trusted news organization, as we were, uh, we as CBS News is, and that's that's what I'm most familiar with. We looked at every new platform as as something we needed to evaluate and a way to bring in new audiences, and we felt it was also our responsibility to to put our trusted news in those environments. So YouTube is a, is a great example. There was, there was a time when YouTube was really, really not a good place for news. If, if you, let's say there was, well, in America, we have a mass shooting pretty much every day. So when a mass shooting took place and the first place many people go for news now is YouTube. That's the reality type in the name of the city, you might come up with CBS News or, or our streaming service, CBSN, broadcasting live the facts and, and the news. But on the, in the, on the side of that video where, you know, YouTube gives you suggestions of what to watch, you would almost immediately have uh, disinformation popping up because the machine for disinformation was so fast was so efficient that there would almost immediately be a video saying, eh, this wasn't real. This was staged. This was AstroTurf. This, and, and we had, uh, from a, you know, a partnership perspective, some, along with other news organizations, some, I would say constructive conversations with Google and YouTube about how that, that shouldn't be happening. And how, um, you know, we didn't want our trusted brand in that environment. And so to their credit, things got a lot better. But that, that you know, like I say, the bad guys are always, always many steps ahead of the good guys in this. And when you think about AI and generative AI in particular, and the ways that, that can be used for evil, frankly... Some of these environments are are really going to become even more challenging because the ability to scale disinformation in every language um, with different videos to 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 put out a, a that mass shooting wasn't real video will take a second as opposed to minutes going forward and I think that that is well I can think of lots of ways that bad guys can use this and I don't think I'm saying anything they aren't already doing. And, and Christy, thinking about um, it from news, from the perspective of uh, the readers, the listeners, the viewers, what, in your view, then, are those, let's say, essential ingredients 
that makes news relevant for those audiences across all those different type of media. As a visionary, what do you see then going forward, knowing the restrictions, knowing the limitations, knowing the issues? I don't know. Maureen, should I start every sentence as a visionary? I think <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it. Okay. Um, that would make me very popular with my family if I started doing that. I think um, it's facts. Facts are the most important thing in the world. And, and there are such things as facts. There is truth and there are facts. There is science. And that's what what needs to be placed, you know, in front of everything. And I think that um, there has been a bit of blurring uh, of the lines between news and opinion. So if you if you look at certain platforms, they put news and opinion in the same section in their interface. That's a problem. Um, I, I think I think that sort of the blurring of the lines is a problem that is is a bit old because I would say people who worked for newspapers and I used to be one of them for a period sort of expected to assume that the the consumer and mass market understood that the editorial section and the opinion physical pages of a newspaper were separate from the front page and that there was like a different team and different standards for writing opinion versus fact. I'm not sure anybody ever really understood that super well. Um, and, and I think that was a bit of a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a delusion that the, the news industry fed itself, but it's become more challenging in the video age because the video, the audience for video is so much greater. Social media has made that audience for video even bigger. And so that that blurring of the lines of fact and opinion has has become more of a challenge to navigate. Do you think there's an element of uh, paid for? So if we go then to, to to business models, so so if if I'm paying for news, if I'm paying for content, if I'm paying to listen to somebody, I treat it more seriously. Um, I mean, I re- I remember Rupert Murdoch coming out, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, saying. Why am I putting my valuable journalists' content in front of a paywall for free? And there's no paywall. We have to do something about this. Um, and here's a businessman thinking about his business. Um, and you know, we can we can comment on uh, what we think of Rupert Murdoch's organisations, but nonetheless, he he's a commercially minded individual. So so, do you think there's something about fixing the business model, fixing the commercial reality that surrounds news that might make it a bit more palatable and and revered and indeed acceptable to the audiences because they need to pay for it. And will they pay for it? Well, I think the way I would look at it is there there is a traditional pay model for news. Um, you, you couldn't get a newspaper unless you were paying for it. And that was one of multiple revenue streams. So obviously you had subscription revenue, advertising revenue, and then you could put classified advertising revenue in its own bucket. Classified went away. I think that a lot of newspapers were sleeping on their subscription revenue for a long time. And were it was sort of a nice to have, but they didn't need it when they had back in the day when they had 30, 40% margins and were part of a nice, big, soft, family-owned media company. Um, it, it was a different era. And what what has happened, and I think it's a, a little bit underreported in the media trades these days, is that the news organizations have become much better at at generating subscription revenue. I mean, it's if you go to an, a media conference right now, h- half of it at least is going to be about how to how to generate subs- subscriptions for news, whether a freemium model is optimal, uh, how to how to how to uh, let's say um, how to set up a paywall in a way that sort of optimizes what's available for free and what's available behind the paywall. Um, so I think that. I think that some of the news organizations, five, 10 years ago, it was much more difficult to say what is the business model for news. But I think there's remains a dual uh, revenue model 
in both advertising and subscriptions. Subscriptions, I'm less worried about, frankly, than advertising. And we could talk about that, you know, we could talk about that for our whole time together. But advertising in news, I think, um, well, I have a lot to say on it. <laughs> well, let's let's talk a, bit, a little bit about advertising, and, and uh, in the context, perhaps of of the of the TV side of news, which which doesn't have subscription, most of them don't have subscription revenues, um, and so they are more exposed to advertising revenues. First of all, uh, what's your view on the traditional TV news networks and and their long term role in this ecosystem of news? Do, do, are they are they here to stay? Are they going to? Uh, are they all going to stay? <laughs> And then how do, can they generate revenues and what are the challenges they're facing, especially in terms of advertising? Right. Okay. This is a big, this is a big question, Claire, and I will try to organize my thoughts here for you in a, in a logical way. So let's, let's talk about TV news in the U.S. and let's put it in two buckets, cable news, broadcast news. We can talk about cable in a minute. Let's just talk about the, the, three main traditional broadcast networks, CBS, ABC, and NBC. The audience that they are reaching between their morning shows and their evening news is so much greater than cable. It, it dwarfs it in terms of the millions and millions of people who still watch it. Now, um, that audience is getting older it is diminishing, but it is still a huge order of magnitude greater than the audience that's tuning into cable. And these are the most trusted brands in news. When I was at CBS, we did at least a yearly survey on all aspects of our, at least our digital business. And we, we always found that CBS, ABC, and NBC were the most trusted sort of US TV brands. Although that said, the category of local news or my local TV news was always ahead of ABC, CBS, and NBC. And that's that's it could be a whole other discussion, but people really, really trust local news, whether that's their local newspaper or their local TV station. It's it's uh, been true for quite some time and I think will continue to be for quite some time. Why is that? You actually can see your news anchors in the grocery store in many places that you know, I don't think uh, I don't think you'll see, you know, David Muir or Nor O'Donnell maybe in the grocery store anytime soon, but I might I might be wrong about that. But you will see the weather guy from your rural Maine TV station um you know, put pumping his own gas, and uh, and that makes it really real. In addition to it, is really such important day to day life news that you need. Um, so I, that's why it's most trusted. But these brands are incredibly trusted because they're also pretty old, and people grew up with them. And so I'll, I'll use CBS as an example because that's I have lots of data on that. When we would do surveys, we would we would do people would bring up two iconic uh, news shows on CBS, Sunday morning and 60 Minutes. People, I would say in the media world, in the marketing, advertising, media world, some people might view those shows as like, well, that's the show my grandma watches. If you're a media buyer, that's what they would often say. But then the fact is, if you went out and did a survey of mass market people, you would get 18-year-olds year, 18 saying, oh yeah, that's the show I watch with my parents and my grandmother. And I love that show. And it's my favorite show. So um, whether it's whether it was 60 Minutes or or Sunday morning, these these shows are beloved and they bring in a new audience because a, the, a family watches it together, which I mean, you know, Claire, we could go back to all of our TV experience and talk about how that shared experience uh, of, of viewership can influence um everything and but maybe is not picked up so much by Nielsen ratings. And also how rare it has become to find programs that people watch together these days. Well there's there's that too. But those are so those are shows, those are Sunday shows. You could start your morning watching it with your parents and then you and then in America in the fall, 
everybody watches football. And then guess what comes on after football? 60 minutes. It just rolls right into it. So that's why it's the number one show week after week. But um, I mean, get, getting back to the, your question about broadcast, what's the future of it? I think the future of broadcast news is the same as it is for all broadcast, entertainment, sports, et cetera. The audience is diminishing. The business model is changing. But the opportunities for that content remain vast. And so using CBS as an example again, which is now owned by Paramount, just as uh, CBS took its owned episodes of shows that it owns, like NCIS, and turned them into a 24-hour-a-day NCIS streaming channel on Pluto, the fast service that it owns, it also is running CBSN, its 24-7 live streaming news service. And I think in certainly in the fast ecosystem, there's very obvious opportunities for these broadcasters to play an even bigger role, especially around live news. It's, it's a massive opportunity and it's really theirs to lose because they are the most trusted brands and they have the infrastructure to cover news live along with you know, networks of affiliates from whom they can also, um, you know, work with on, on live and breaking news. In the SVOD ecosystem, and all of those broadcasters have SVOD uh, plays, personally, I think they're sleeping on the opportunity there and we could get, we could get deeper into that. I, I think somehow all of the streamers across the board look at Netflix as their model. And since Netflix doesn't put news front and center because it, it doesn't have a news organization, uh, they just copied the Netflix model and they put entertainment front and center. We have seen news be a big driver of loyalty and a reducer of churn in SVOD services that do lean into it when they lean into it. But that remains more rare than it should be. That's very interesting because in, in the UK, I think you could say, and the BBC iPlayer isn't as well because it's free to their license payer, but they do put news much more front and center, I would say. When there is something going on, you know, you can you can go, the it's sort of featured very prominently. The coronation, which happened uh, last weekend, was featured extremely prominently as a live streaming opportunity on the iPlayer as it was happening. So it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, unfortunately missed the coronation but, because I was sleeping. But um, I, I, anything royal related, you can guarantee that the U.S. broadcasters are going to lean into that in their, on all of their streaming platforms because it is, it's, a, it's a major driver. That said, you know, there's other types of news that, that they're not as adept at um, distributing. And part of the reason is truly the, the, the infrastructure that, um, that is used to manage SVOD services. So for some of these services, well, the coronation is easy because you know that it's happening and when it's happening. So you can schedule it and you know what you need with, with that team, which if, if, if it's truly breaking news, it, it will take them, even under the best circumstances, it, it could take hours to put the right link up on the home screen of, of our major SVOD services. Oh. I, it's, I, I know that's like amazing, but I know it's true. <laughs> we have to think about it. They, they know, okay, well, um, such and such scripted show is debuting a new episode. So we schedule that out a week in advance and we have the art and it's programmed and it's, you know, these are, this, it's, it's not, it's not, not your dynamic executives that are doing that work. <laughs> so, um, it, look at, look at, you know, net Netflix's attempt to do live programming last week was pretty much a disaster. So, for those who missed it, uh, Netflix tried to uh, stream a live episode of, I think the show is called Love is Blind. Uh, and then after 90 minutes, 
tweeted that actually the show wasn't going to go on. And I don't know what, I don't know, Christy, if you know what happened, I, or Maureen perhaps, I don't know the details of it, but it wasn't the best experience uh, in terms of live streaming when you can't actually put it up after 90 minutes. But it's, it's like trying to, to have somebody that runs marathons do a sprint. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very different skill sets. And I think that that's, you know, if you look at, look at, I mean, back to your question about the future of broadcast. Broadcast is, or news is organized around shows. And typically the national broadcast teams wouldn't love to hear this, but they're not as adept at live news as cable or even local TV because local TV uh, stations are, they're set up if there's a, I don't know, um, a major car crash (laughs) that's going to impact commuting traffic, they're set up to get that news out to their viewers. Whereas national teams are set up around, well, oh, something happened. We, we, is it, is it important enough to break in? Mm, Maybe not. We don't want to interrupt general hospital today for our viewers. So we'll just report on that at in the evening news at 6.30. And so they have time to prepare. They're not, it's a big machine to break into national broadcasting with live news and requires actually negotiation because the the the, the, the head of news has to call LA to say, may we interrupt the soaps or the game show or the whatever, the talk show that's happening right now. Yeah, sorry. Last question. I'll let Maureen, but I, I'm fascinated by this topic. So I, but just last question. Because, you know, the, you could say that the 80s, 90s, maybe even 2000 was, was the reign of breaking news. This was the reign of the cable channels who were able, you know, the OG, Chase, and all of these incredible moments. And as you say, they were set up for it. They are set up to deal with breaking news. Have we moved on from there? Are we now in an asynchronous world, you know, with TikTok and podcasts and uh, and where actually people are quite comfortable waiting for somebody to tell them what's happened without the pressure of ha- having to know everything at the right moment. I don't think we've moved on to an asynchronous world. I, I, what, what I have seen and what we have seen is a proliferation of live video. Not all of that is technically news from trusted sources, but it is live video. And it is available on YouTube, on Instagram, on on uh, Twitter, on TikTok, essentially. I mean, whether it's streaming or not, but within minutes of, of a major event, you will find video of almost everything. And that means that we have consumers who who are they are much savvier than most people give them credit for they they know how to filter for the most part real from fake most people do i think the vast majority of people know have have a solid trust filter but but the ones who don't tend to get a lot of attention because those are the people who go down the rabbit hole and are easily influenced by Whatever it is, QAnon or uh, you know some some one of the many many um, pundits who frame what they're doing as news. Christy, do you do you think um, looking at the younger audiences and looking at how they exchange information and they probably exchange information as you say through live video? Of, I've just seen this happen and capture it and share it amongst their friends. Do you think, um, you know, because they look to influencers, they look to role models, do you you think news anchors or do you think individuals um, from the old world, let's say, can carry and continue uh, the news distribution um, into this new social environment for younger audiences? Like take an anchor and he can... He can or she can, like Caitlin Collins or Ari Melba or Jake Tapper or others, have their own viewership, have their own audiences and they're trusted. And they can move through into podcasts, into social media 
There's other ways to disseminate news and deliver it to younger audiences in a way that they like it and receive it in sound bites or in snacks, you know. And how do you see the younger generation viewing news, receiving news, and how can we bridge that old to new environment? Could it be through talent as a, as a, as a broad term to describe the anchors? Yeah, that is a great question. And I, I think that talent is considered important for cable and broadcast um, because that's a model that's been built up for decades. Let's say kind of starting in the 70s with Rune Arledge and ABC was a was a time when when we started calling news anchors talent and i think that that term is is really key to the discussion um not all anchors are have a background in in reporting or have as solid a background in reporting Often they're chosen because a production executive believes they can draw a Nielsen rating. Drawing a Nielsen rating is, is a different game than reporting the news. And I personally, what I have seen is that, and, and research that, that we did supports this, is that that's almost an old school way of thinking. I, I guess I'm not going to say almost. I'm going to say the idea that talent is key to, to trusted news reporting is antiquated. We started CBSN with anchors who were very experienced and excellent news gathering uh, people. None were household names and we became the number one streaming service in, in the space. CBS at the time on the broadcast side, well, on the average day, it's evening news was a, was a pretty distant third. And the morning show was a pretty distant third in that three broadcaster quote unquote horse race on election nights. If you included cable, CBS was often coming in sixth in Nielsen ratings. But in streaming, CBS was number one because we were in we were in early, we had great distribution, and we had executives on the production side who were very experienced and adept at running a 24-7 live news service. And that is what made it successful. That that skill set, having let's say the, the the marathoner versus the sprinters running the new service was key to its success because they had an ability to move quickly and but not too quickly because sometimes if you move too quickly you you get it egregiously wrong so um, I think that was the key but but, but so what I was that in answer to your question Maureen we had no evidence that talent made any difference in the success of the streaming service. And I mean, no, no, none, none, zero, nada. We at one point hired a quote unquote big name anchor and the numbers, the streaming numbers did not move one iota up or down. So it wasn't, it didn't move either way. Maybe at the time it was early days of streaming. It was early days of fast. It was early days of of SVOD. It was early days of our, you know app app based streaming news. But the, it, the brand of CBS very much trusted in this space. It 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 most definitely was a bottom of the funnel decision influencer when people saw that CBS brand on the news. But I would also say we were on 
<laughs> we were literally on the worst set you could have. It was in the middle of the newsroom and you could see people shopping on the internet on their computers. They, were, they worked for another show and people would be like, oh, I'm buying sweaters after the morning show is over. Like, oh, I need some shoes. And you could see it in the background because that was their workspace and there would be news and there would be people moving around. And so it was, it was very inexpensive. It was not a, like, it was way, way less order of magnitude of a, of the multi-million dollar sets that you see being built for like a two day use on election night or something like that. Um, the staff was pretty basic. Um, and and yet, we we had um, we had news gatherers who were really really good at delivering live news, and in a way that um, it's a, it's a certain skill set. Well, that's a very uh, reassuring story to think that you know with limited budgets and no talent, but high quality reporters, you could actually make it in news. But do you think talent then? Is useful for advertisers. You mentioned advertising before and the struggle with advertising revenues. Is 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 that what they're good for? Well, <laughs> I, I I have um, had the privilege of being part of many ad sales calls in my career, and I would say that in the period of time that I worked for CBS News. Every quarter, it became more challenging to sell advertising in news. This period of time was fall of 2015 through summer 2021. And I, in my consulting work now, I currently have clients, not all are in the news space, but those who are in the news space have challenges selling advertising around news. And I will break that down a few ways. One is if you're part of an organization in which your sales team can also sell entertainment and sports and make their number, they will not sell news. <laughs> it was just too hard. So that that's part of it. If, it if, if you're part of an organization that only sells news, it's it's easier to sell news. Um, that's That's one thing. But the the automation of programmatic advertising, whether that's in text-based news or video news, has made it exponentially more challenging to monetize monetize news. Uh, keyword blocking is rampant. Um, at one time, we were given a list of key, <laughs> keywords that a very, very major tech company wanted to block in its advertising. And that list ranged, that list of words ranged from Syria to diapers. So that's pretty much everything. If you, you know, and, and by the way, so much research has been done on this topic. Every single, every single media company that has a news organization has done research at a cost to itself, proprietary research that shows Basically, there is no negative impact on brands that advertise within news. There is no evidence to support this. It's, it's simply perception. And there's a perceived risk factor. And the example that's always given is a plane crash story that happens to have a Boeing ad <laughs> targeted toward it or a Delta or American Airlines ad. It's it's, and, and this is such an outlier. Um, and it, and by the way, that can be blocked, and that's reasonable. But or it could be manually done, or you could turn off ads in those types of stories, which we often did um, on CBSN. When the, I mean, if we're if you're on live news and it's a, you know, a negative or a a, a very serious topic, you just turn off ads. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a real, it's not a real issue for, for, uh, viewers or advertisers, but I think agencies like to think that they're doing their clients a favor by, 
by block by blocking news and news and certain keywords and that's one way for agencies to to say they're adding value for their clients um that said the, the those clients that that do advertise in news are dedicated and those who support it are are great supporters of of news and they're they are out there um but it is it it became more challenging with every quarter between i would say late 2015 um, through you know the time when I was actively doing it up until today, and I think that there are many factors in that, but there has been a global campaign to discredit news, and it has been effective. Has it waned, or is it uh, as have the organisations come back um, and try to regain the, the trust of the audiences? Um, well, I, I think the organizations have trust of the audiences. I think it's had a greater impact, actually, on media advertising and, and marketing um, than than on consumers. I think it's a B to I think it's a bigger issue in B to B than in B to C, basically. Yeah, because it's such a small world, and people follow what somebody else is doing. And people move from agency to agency. Media planners come in. They're young. Nobody wants to make a mistake. Nobody wants to get fired. And, um, you know, that, that it's, it, there's enough risk there, which oddly I've always found to be, kind, you know, hypocritical in the U.S. in that some of the quote unquote copaganda shows that we have in primetime are much more violent than news programming. And disturbing. And I could, I mean, the list goes on if you think about it. And, and yet, you know, brands don't seem to have an issue advertising in shows in which people are mutilated, maimed, murdered, raped, et cetera, nightly and primetime programming. I love this word, copaganda. I'm going to use it now. Uh, it's, I'm stealing that one. Uh, can we can we uh, briefly talk about outside the U.S.? I mean, that, this was fascinating about what's going on in the U.S. Are, are things different outside the U.S. in your experience from what you've seen? Is it better? Is it worse? Or are these trends global trends? Well, it depends on the country. And w w I would say globally, threats to news and journalism are increasing. The, the campaign... as as I would describe it, there is a campaign. It's not the only factor, but it is a factor. Uh, it, the campaign continues. Where is it coming from? Well, it's not It's not coming from only one place. It has many different sources, but I'll give you a couple different examples that I think are relevant. Um, one is Brazil. Microsoft did a study last year, um, and it was the study was organized around Ukraine news and disinformation. And one of the things they found is that the most popular source of news about Ukraine in Brazil was RU, the Russian propaganda um, outlet. So, I mean, I think we all know how, how people get to those sources. It's basically through search. Um, and um, that that is a very disturbing trend, and Brazil is not the only country that was seeing, you know, high usage of RU as a news source because it it looks and seems almost exactly like uh, a trusted news source. The formats are the same, the templates are the same, whether it's video or text. A headline is a headline. The copy is the copy, or there is an anchor-like person sitting at a desk delivering it in the same way as the trusted source. It, I think for some people, it, it can be very difficult to tell the difference. And that is a disturbing trend. And whether that's, that's also taking place in, in social outlets as well. Um, another example would be the Philippines, where you had... Um, an authoritarian leader who uh, was 
shutting down major news outlets, trusted news outlets, who was persecuting journalists. And one of those journalists was the uh, Maria, Maria Ressa, who went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize and write a book called How to Stand Up to a Dictator. Uh, she is re- continues to face multiple lawsuits that could put her in jail for, for potentially the rest of her life due to doing the work of reporting. So threats to journalism and news globally are significant. Um, there were more journalists killed in 2022 than in 2021 globally. There was a significant increase. Ukraine uh, Ukraine was a driver of that, but Mexico is it also a particularly deadly country for, for journalists. Okay, that's the, the negative side. But on the, on the positive side, I think globally, and I, I can certainly say from having had the opportunity and the privilege to have international consulting clients, there remains an interest in news, in supporting news, in particularly in local news. There is an investment taking place, whether it's in public broadcasters or private broadcasters or news outlets uh, in in disseminating trusted information. So there are many, many, many startups in the U.S. and around the world that are doing great reporting and sort of meat and potatoes. Go to the go to the city council meeting, go to the zoning meeting, go to the education or school board meeting and see what's happening and that's that's what really impacts people's lives. Not everything has to be up, um, you know, award-winning um, expose to be valuable. And and going back to what we were discussing earlier, these models for for subscriptions are actually starting to pay off. They've they've taken root. These organizations have wrapped their arms around them and are figuring out how to how to support trusted news um, with the with a, a subscription revenue model and with the advertising revenue model that remains. I'm curious, Christy, where'd you get your trusted news? <laughs> well, I read a lot and I subscribe to I don't know, many dozens of email newsletters, both from major organizations such as your two go-tos in the U.S., the, well, the New York Times, the Washington Post, but also I do read the Wall Street Journal. And, and then local news, I've, you know, I get... I get the local outlet here in Maine and I get a newsletter from the Associated Press, which is really one of the oldest news sources, at least in, in this era of the planet and, um, and one of the most trusted, also my former employer, but I think, um, but in a good way. And I, I don't watch as much TV news as I did when I was um, employed in the service of a of a streaming news outlet. It it honestly it gets a little bit. It's it can be a very challenging business. What wh- whether you're a, a local news reporter who's writing text or you are a video journalist. Particularly in the U.S., um, there are mass shootings all the time, and they must be covered. And if you have any ounce of humanity, it it watching too many too much coverage of mass shootings can can really um, really be difficult. 
And I, I think that that is something as news industries, this is like a complete tangent, but we are traumatizing a generation of young journalists by putting them in these positions to cover these, these events in the U S mass shootings. It's you either become desensitized or you get PS, PTSD and burnout. I was actually going to ask you, Christy, whether or not um, the uh, intakes for journalists uh, and journalism at schools, has that dropped or has it stayed neutral? Has it gone up? I, I, my sense is here in the UK, it's uh, it's it's neutral. It hasn't dropped, I, but I'm, I'm not sure about the US statistics. I, no, I think there's very solid enrollment in, in journalism schools, most definitely. Um, it, it's It's not... People's interest in, which is, which is, I think should make everybody feel encouraged. Um, we, you know, we talked about some of the negative stuff, bad guys and, and disinformation and using tech tools to scale disinformation, but I think the good guys are still doing okay. And trust and, and facts are, they're doing okay. And, and they, they tend to prevail over disinformation and misinformation ultimately despite the the challenges but it's an it's an ongoing fight and i would just say as i as i started out by saying i was a teenage news reporter it wasn't easy then people would slam the door in your face or even if you were just going to the strawberry festival to ask people if they were excited about strawberry season so you could write up a story about it they would still sometimes not want to talk to you because you were from the news outlet so it's been challenging for a long time and will continue to be, and there will always be a new, um, a new thing that comes along. Well, I think that's, uh, I mean, that, the, the fact that you, you still see it in a positive light after all these years, and I can't believe anybody would ever slam the door in your face, Christy. I certainly wouldn't dare to do that. Uh, I, I think that's a really good place for us to finish off. I would I could keep going for many, many more hours, but I think we do need to finish off. And one of the questions we like to ask our guests, which is a slight uh, tangent from the core of the podcast, is what are you know beyond news? What what are you watching on TV at the moment? What's good? What's 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 your recommendation for stuff to well, look of at? Of course, I'm watching Succession, the greatest reality show in the history of television, <laughs> and. I think that everything about it is is so scarily accurate. It's unbelievable. So I love that. I watch uh, there's a show called Raising Canaan on Stars that is excellent, okay. and it is um, it's it's a backstory of a character in the power universe oh, yeah. that is on Stars. So. The, the character Kanan, who's allegedly loosely based on 50 Cent, this is his backstory, and it takes place um, takes place in the 80s in New York. So the it's, it has an incredible Tony-winning cast, um, and uh, Joey Badass is, plays a, a drug dealer in it. Um, he hasn't won a Tony, but some of his co-stars have. And then they just cast uh, Wendell Pierce, who oh. played... Bunk in The Wire, and I forget the name of his character on Treme, and obviously just uh, played Willie Loman on Broadway and was amazing. So that that show, I haven't seen that the, the third season with Wendell Pierce hasn't come out yet, but that's I'm I'm very much anticipating that. And what else do I watch? I mean, I love the Hundred Foot Wave on HBO. I'm sticking with HBO right now, HBO Max. If you haven't seen that, it's one rare show where the second season I think is better than the first. And I loved the first season. Incredible characters. These people who surf big wave surfers, basically. It's it's so good. It First season starts out a little slow, but it's, you have to stick with it. Um, I absolutely love shows like Our Flag Means Death um, and any anything um, in that world I'm, I'm a fan of. I'm, I'm watching the Party Down um, new, you know, 10 years later sequel or however many years it is. And I mean, you know, Claire, I watch a ton of TV and we, I could go on and on and on forever <laughs> on this topic, but there's a lot of good TV out there right now. Uh, I, oh, I 
could go on forever. I, you're not watching American Authors set in Detroit. I, I actually quite <laughs> enjoyed it. I watched the first two seasons. And I thought that was quite fun. Um, I, Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Davis on Peacock. Let's give us okay. No, um, Abbott Elementary. Another. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Show. And and if really Colin amazing. from Accounts is it over in the in the US, <laughs> track, I mean, I've been plugging it for the last three podcasts, but you should still watch it. Australian. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Uh, I know we don't have time for one more question, but I'm going to ask one more question anyway. The writers' strike. We haven't talked about it on the podcast, and it's a pretty momentous event right now in the US. And any any thoughts on that? Many thoughts, many thoughts. Well, we could let's do a separate podcast on it because I actually was running TV Guide Digital during the last writer's strike, yeah. which for, that was a that was an ongoing Super Bowl for our editorial coverage in in a way that it was a bad Super Bowl, but it was oddly at the time one of the notable things about the last writer's strike was how much. Uh, consumer and mass market interest there was in it yeah. was a it initially was a surprise but as time went on we realized oh wow we really have to cover every in every little bit of this because tv is such a big part of people's lives that they 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 pay such close attention to well am i going to get the next season of this show um they they, they especially the big tv fans who were really like reading all the casting news on on tv guide and all the interviews that we did with showrunners they were paying such close attention to how it was, it was in the same way that people would follow a football team like well there's a new coach or there's a new manager um or this player's been traded that is how i would say people view tv and i think it's, that is still the case so that's something i think that people in the industry tend to um, overlook how much how much con consumers and viewers pay attention to this. In terms of what's changed, the models are for, for making a living in writing are so much more challenged. And um, I think that I think that th there are some very significant concerns for the industry about who will who will um, who will do this work? Uh, I think there are some. Okay, let me let me frame this because I do have a I have a thought on this that is, I think, <sighs> worth saying. So let's let's compare now to the last writer's strike and let's look at the executives overseeing the major media companies and what their backgrounds are. And what their actions show about how they value talent, and that is entertainment talent with a capital T, actors, writers, showrunners, et cetera. I'm going to make a generalization and say that executives during the last writer's strike actually did value talent with a capital T more than current executives. That's a major generalization, that's my opinion, but I think that th there isn't enough value being placed on writers and showrunners. And particularly if you're a showrunner right now, you it is an extremely difficult job. There are so many more shows. And I think I think it was Jane Featherstone on this uh podcast who was talk who talked about how much how much uh, how much less experienced showrunners are now because there's a scarcity issue. So you get thrown into showrunning maybe before you're ready. And the showrunners that I do know are exhausted. Absolutely exhausted. Okay, we have to stop. I'm so sorry. Yeah, we've uh, we can't run over the hour. I mean, we could easily. Maybe this is uh, part one of two or three or four. Uh, Christy, thanks ever so much. We do have to close down. There's such a lot to cover. I just think of you as just this poor little teenager trying to interview someone about strawberries and then going, "Get out of here." Get out of here, you! I'm not interested in your strawberries or whatever it was that you were going to. Um, it just seems very unfair. Uh, Claire, well done. Great questions as ever. I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.
Bye-bye, Oliver. And Maureen Ditto, uh, very nice. I think we covered most of the things, but maybe there's some more. But anyway, bye, Maureen, for now. Bye, Oliver. And, of course, finally, Christy. That was great. I learned so much. Uh, uh, we probably need to have you on again. But anyway, for now, thank you for your time. Enjoy your wonderful cabin. Uh, we'll uh, see you again soon, I hope. Many thanks again. See you on the next one, everyone.